And we come now in the preaching of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 50 as we meditate on the Lord and His sufferings before we partake of communion. We will be considering verses 4 through 7 as the suffering servant speaks, but I will read from verse 1 so that we might gain the context. Isaiah 50 and verse 1. Please turn there in your copy of God's Holy Word. And please give your attention now to the reading of God's Word. These are the words of God. Let us hear them in that way. Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves and for your transgressions is your mother put away wherefore when i came was there no man when i called was there none to answer is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem or have i no power to deliver behold at my rebuke i dry up the sea i make the rivers a wilderness their fish stinketh because there is no water and dieth for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear. And I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Our God and Father, how vivid are the sufferings of our Lord in this text. And Father, we know as vivid as they are to us, apart from the Spirit at work in us, uh, these would just be mere words, and they would not be life-giving, vital words, that testify of the love of God and the willingness of our Lord Jesus Christ to go to the cross. And so we pray that as your minister preaches, you would give your servant the spirit of the Lord to preach these dear words to these dear people. May your servant decrease that Christ may increase in this text. And would all of your people now come before the word of God that they might behold the Savior as though crucified among them that Christ would, by the Spirit's work, be portrayed so vividly that all here would be astonished, utterly astonished, by what Christ has done willingly for his people. And may the sacrament then take on great meaning as they come to it later. And so, Father, to the end that you would be glorified, we pray that you would give thy servant the tongue of the learned, that by Christ's Spirit I might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, for our preparatory service, we had considered Christ's desire for us, that he is in the habit of wooing us to come and meet with him at his table. Well, you know, and you might know this, and some of you ladies might know this, some men might try to woo a lady by saying sweet nothings to them. But then, when they get what they want, they abandon them. Or when loving them comes at a cost, they might be nowhere to be found. But this morning, what we find at the Lord's Supper is that Christ does not woo us with sweet nothings, but He woos us to Himself by most of all showing and demonstrating His love. That's how the love of God is commended or demonstrated to us on the cross. He shows us His willingness. He woos us by uh, showing that He is 
was so willing and was so willing to sacrifice himself to those of us who are weary, weary of our sin, most of all. He shows us in the sacrament that he did not hide his face from shame. He did not hide his face from spitting even. But he presented his face for shame, for mockery, for the cruelty that we heard of in Matthew 27 and prophesied of in Isaiah 53. To win you, to save you, to cleanse you, and to be wed to you forever, believer. This is what you must take into your heart when you observe the action of the breaking of the bread. This is what? My body which is broken for who? For you. Broken, not reluctantly, not with gritted teeth, but willingly. Broken through shame. Broken through pain. Broken for you, the believer. If I can extrapolate, this is my body I broke willingly, purposefully for you, beloved, to save you, not begrudgingly, but willingly for the joy set before me of reconciling you to God through my work. All of that you must see in the action, both actions really of the Lord's Supper. And so before we come to the table, our theme is Christ's willingness to suffer to save us. Christ's willingness to suffer to save us. And we'll consider it under two heads this morning. First is Christ's voice, and second is Christ's willingness. First, Christ's voice. For context, as you might know, this text is one of the four servant songs uh, or servant poems, prophetic as they are, of the suffering servant. The Holy Ghost, boys and girls, 700 years before the incarnation of Christ, gave Isaiah a vivid portrayal of Christ's sufferings. So vivid, in fact, that many call Isaiah the fifth evangelist alongside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So much so, actually, it's very interesting, this text, uh, Isaiah reveals some of Christ's sufferings that do not even make it into the gospel accounts, such as in verse 6, which has the detail that Jesus' beard was plucked off his face something that the four Gospels do not note. Well, as this chapter opens, the Lord is speaking to His ancient people, His ancient people who were exiles out of the promised land, out of the land that God had promised them. And what a lamentable thing this was to them, to be cast out of the land that God had promised to Abraham. And so in the prior chapter, the church complained and lamented of it And listen to these words. The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. In Isaiah 49, 14. Forgotten and forsaken. That's what the church of old had felt in her distress. But we must ask ourselves at the table before us, even in our sin, are the elect of God ever utterly forsaken and totally forgotten? even when he chastises us as he chastised them in exile. Let the Lord answer that question. In response to Zion's sighs in the prior chapter, he said, and listen to these, in these words ought to be engraven upon our hearts, beloved. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. He has promised that we, his people, are never forgotten before God. He said, and ladies who have children, you might, you might look on this with astonishment. Right? He said, a, a, a woman may in this world forget her nursing infant, the fruit of her womb. But God's people are never forgotten before God. That's how great my love is for them. As a psalmist uh, tells us to sing, Forever will the Lord cast off and gracious be no more. Forever is His mercy gone, fails His word evermore. It's true that to be gracious the Lord forgotten hath, and that His tender mercies He hath shut up in His wrath. What was the answer of the psalmist? To thine own people with thine arm thou didst redemption bring. He, his people are not forgotten 
so much so that God will come to bring redemption to them. Jehovah by himself would redeem and restore his people. And the supper that is before you makes that visible for you today. So as we come back to Isaiah 50 with that context, God continues to answer their complaint with some force really at first in this chapter. Jehovah said, never forget I was not the one to begin the controversy. You cannot charge me, the Lord God Almighty, with your present distress. This is not your fault being, uh, my fault being uh, in exile. And he asked them a series of rhetorical questions to vindicate his own righteousness and to convict them. The first is in verse 1. Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? In other words, I did not put your mother away. Right, that generation that went into exile. I did not put your mother away. What was the issue? Your mother played the whore. He says, show me her bill of divorcement. In other words, did I break my covenant? Can I do such a thing? No. I am the faithful one. You are the unfaithful one. The second question in the same verse is, which of my creditors is it that I have sold you? It's like, did I send you to Babylon? Did I send you to Assyria? Because I needed money. He said, no, I am in no one's debt. And I need nothing anyhow. I am blessed in myself. You're not there because I needed anything. No, the controversy, the fault is entirely the churches. He continues, behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves. And for your transgressions is your mother put away. He says, behold, what's that word, boys and girls? It means pay attention. Take note. He says, never forget the reality. The truth is that it is our ruin that has come from our own iniquities. The fault is 100% on us. The wages of sin, meaning our sin, is death. In other words, what we owe, what we are owed for our sin is eternal misery and is eternal death. That is the simple equation in the Bible. Our iniquities equate to our miseries. Beloved, this is what we are owed. We are liable to reap misery for our sin. The controversy with God began as our controversy, not His. In the garden, We went astray. In the promised land, we went astray. As for our personal sins, we have gone astray. You read that in Isaiah 53 in the readings. We all like sheep have gone astray. And we ask the question, is God unrighteous then to send us to hell, the ultimate exile from God? No. Is God capricious to do so? No. In Isaiah 59, later on, God will say it is our iniquity and our evil that have separated us from a God who is utterly holy, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. This is why you're in exile, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness, none calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies. Later in that chapter, their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not. That's all of us, boys and girls. I trust that many of you have heard these words before in your New Testament. Does the Apostle Paul not quote those in Romans 3 to show us that we are all separated from God because of our iniquities? Beloved, the truth is, we have all spoken perverse things. We have all had thoughts of iniquity. We have all made haste to shed innocent blood, whether in the heart or with the hand. We have all destroyed ourselves. Hosea 13.9, you remember this from our time in Hosea. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. If you'll not admit that, friends, there's no place here at this blessed table for you. 
This is a table for sinners who have come to this sad and sorry realization that our sins, my sins, have separated me from God, that I have forfeited any blessing from God, that He is righteous. You must admit this as you come to the table, that He is righteous to cast sinners, myself too, into the deepest recesses of hell. You cannot come to the table without believing you are anything but a sinner. That your sins have separated you righteously so from God. And if you scoff at this message, friend, your guilt is multiplied. Multiplied. For when the Lord proclaimed that same message to his ancient church by his prophets, prophets that called on them to turn away from their sin, to repent, did they respond? No. So in verse 2 is the third rhetorical question which vindicates God utterly. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? He had long manifested Himself. He had come through His prophets to speak the Word of God. Thus saith the Lord, when I came and when I called, He held forth what? To the people of God of old before exile. For so many years, He he bore with them long. He held forth pardon and forgiveness if they would simply what? Repent. But He asks, did any man answer my call? The answer, no. So this is not sudden. He gave them many opportunities to turn back to himself. And so he vindicates his own righteousness. In their exile, in their misery, they had no one to blame but themselves. Even as he extended his long-suffering mercies to them. Instead, what? They found their pleasure in their wickedness and in their vanity, in their idols. And there was no blessed thought of God in their hearts. And then here we find after the sentencing, like the criminal who cries only after the verdict is read and not before, they complain to God about God. Unless they thought, thought, or unless they believed, well, maybe God doesn't have the power then to save us and free us from exile. He said, no, it's not my lack of power that keeps you from returning. He said, remember who I am and my power. Behold, again, take note. At my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish fish stinketh because there is no water and dieth for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. He reminds them, have you forgotten my power over Egypt and power over Pharaoh to save my people with a mighty arm? My arm, because I do not change, is not shortened that it cannot save. Totally. The text teaches through and through, you deserve exile. You deserve separation from God. You deserve eternal misery for your iniquities and your hard, unrepentant, impenitent hearts. There is nothing you can charge me with. I am clean in the matter. And you know, the marvel to us, beloved, is that I suppose our text and our Bible could end with that thought. Could just end right there. It would be a just and holy thing if God sent his ministers to preach just that message. And yet, there is a table set before us, isn't there? And yet, there is communion with God. And the question is, how? How can that be with such things before us? Well, yes, Hosea 13.9 said, O Israel... Thou hast destroyed thyself. But as you likely know, that's not the entirety of the verse, is it? It's not. There's that blessed word that comes so often in the Bible. You have destroyed yourself, but... And what's the phrase that follows that? But. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. If the constant refrain of the Bible is that we have destroyed ourselves, that our sins have destroyed ourselves, the refrain that follows throughout the Bible is, in me, in Jehovah, is thine help. And that is the entirety of the message that God sends his ministers to preach. And that is why there is a communion table before us today and why Isaiah doesn't end so abruptly with verse 3, 
But it shows how God Almighty, He who dried the sea with His word of power, who clothes the heaven with blackness, became the suffering servant to restore His people to communion with with Himself. In me is thine help. And so we find in verse 4, the servant of the Lord speaking. The Lord God, so the, the speaker changes here. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Now, before we get into that, those words, what we have to recognize about the suffering servant is that he is Christ. He's the one that Isaiah prophesied of in chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And in Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Boys and girls, what's the meaning of the word, of the name Emmanuel? God with us. The suffering servant then, born of a virgin, he is the everlasting mighty God. The servant that suffers so greatly and how, if time didn't elude us, we should meditate on this so deeply and maybe you will today. The servant that suffers so greatly is God himself come to us from the heavens in the flesh because there is no bill of divorcement as he said. He had never stopped loving his people. And he cannot. He would have to deny himself. It is impossible, child of God. Not one of the elect, not one of you who believe, is ever forgotten before God. As hard as it is to believe, mothers may forget their nursing infants, but the Lord will never forget his people, even as they sin against him. So he comes to be the suffering servant to redeem us, to suffer in our place, to bear our iniquity and to bear our guilt. Why? Because our names are engraven on the palms of his hands. So beginning in verse 4, the servant speaks, the Son of God, this is the second person of the Trinity, as the God-man. He says that the Lord hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He was given the tongue of the learned and the Lord had opened his ear, right? He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. Now we see this then as the God man, because as God, the son, uh, the suffering servant, he needed to learn nothing. But as man, the suffering servant learned as men learned. You remember Luke two, boys and girls, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature. And in, we'll take up this part tonight in favor with God and man. Now, what is it that he learned? Now, you might think he learned the and was taught the finer points of theology, and he certainly was. But, and I think this gives us such illumination in this text, Isaiah, Isaiah gives us such illumination, light to unlock Christ's words as we hear them in the gospel according to Luke as we go through that series. His learning was what? For what purpose? And why don't you rejoice in this? that he might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. Isn't that a marvelous thing? That the Son of God in the flesh, his learning was predominantly that he might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. And so when you look at the words of Christ throughout the gospel speaking, who does he speak to so often? He speaks to those weary He speaks to those weary of their sin. He speaks to those weary of their misery, of life in this fallen world. And he speaks to them with such skill to lift them from their misery by pointing all men to himself. And we read, right? Don't we read that others said of him, he, what? Never man spake like this man. Never has there been one to speak a word in season to those who are weary. What was that great word that we often reflect on at communion time that he spoke with such great skill? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are what? Heavy laden. And I will give you, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. 
This is the gospel message, isn't it? This is what the gospel is. It is a word to those who are weary. He doesn't speak, not at all, to you who are satisfied, to you who are self-righteous. He speaks with the greatest of skill as the great physician to you who are weary. Weary of what? Weary of your sin. Weary of your guilty conscience. Weary of your separation from God. Weary of your flesh. Weary of the world. Weary of hopelessness itself. He says to you, I know how to speak a word to you that are weary. If you would only look at my word and find a word, I know how to speak it. Will you have an open ear to hear what I have to say? Are you weary, friend? Are you weary this day? He says, come to me and I will give you rest. Rest from your sin. Rest from your guilt. Rest from the burden of it all. He says he comes with compassion for sinners who have destroyed themselves. That's the astonishment, isn't it? He's in his right to say, you have destroyed yourself. All that you have, you deserve. But he says, I come to give you rest. I have come to be the help and savior of sinners. Just come to me. This is a word to the weary. Truly, as we have, we often sing, we didn't sing it today. We often sing in the 45th Psalm of Jesus, don't we? Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. The gospel itself, will you ever forget it, is a gracious word to the weary. How often has the Lord spoken in the scriptures? Things like this, thy faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. How skilled, how learned he is to speak to those who are wearied of their sin. And he spoke with great skillfulness. What else? Things like this, a bruised reed shall he not break and the smoking flax shall he not quench. Are you weary? Are you a bruised reed? He says, come to me. I have a word to speak to you. I have something to say to you, child of God, who are weary. Come to me. This is my word, and I will give you rest, and I will take your weariness away. If you've never believed on Christ, he says, I will give you eternal rest. That's what, right? The Sabbath rest pictures for us on this day is an eternity of rest. It's this foretaste of a day that is coming, of an eternity set before us where Christ gives us rest. Today's just a small taste of that. What we have before us is an eternity of this. So, if you have never believed on Christ, you need to come to Him to get rest. And if you have believed on Christ and are weary, remind yourself, return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. You, if you are wearied today, you need to return unto the Lord who has done such great things for you. You see, He has come to give you rest. So He says to you today at the table, return unto thy rest, O my soul. Come and take rest from me at the table. Sigh, Lord, increase my faith. Let me believe such things. But the servant, he did not only speak to the weary, he suffered for the weary. He became weary for the weary to give the weary rest. And he suffered in the place to give the condemnation that sinners deserved, that they might have the righteousness and salvation of God. Otherwise, there could be no rest. If he just had a word to speak, but had not performed salvation, God promised in Isaiah 48.22 and Isaiah 57.21. And when he repeats himself in such ways, we take note. There is no peace for the wicked. There's no rest for the wicked. And so to give us the peace that we need, Christ had to bear the guilt of the wicked and the debt that we owe to God. And that's what we see proclaimed at the communion table before us. And that's what makes the heart of us who are weary of our sin so astonished whenever we are seated at the table. It causes us to glorify God and have our affection stirred that the Son of God loved them so willingly and suffered for them willingly as well. 
to remove our burden and guilt. The sad thing is that we often grow weary of something we ought never grow weary of, which is to hear that. And that's why we are given the sacrament to regularly remind ourselves, do this in remembrance of me. We're so weary of hearing such gracious and blessed words from Christ. But you ought to remember whenever the elements are before you that Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. And I hope, child of God, you will never grow weary of hearing it. And if you are weary of hearing it, that's something to repent of. And that's probably why your soul is weary. Because you are weary of hearing of the gospel itself. So let's consider Christ's willingness now to lay down his life as our second heading. What you will find in the remainder of the text is that Christ was not strong-armed into saving you. He did it willingly, both out of love for God and for love for you. In Christ, we've often marveled at this, haven't we? Christ is the incarnation of the greatest commandment, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and love thy neighbor as thyself. He is the very incarnation of it. And so in verse 5, he says, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned back. His ear, unlike ours, and this is why we need a, a Savior, unlike ours, his ear was an ear open to the Word of God, always open and inclined to God's will. He was not rebellious to the Lord's will, right? As you see the nation of Israel, the church underage in this, in this book. In Isaiah, or us, for that matter. He was not rebellious to the Lord's will in any way. But here, astonishingly, especially the Lord's will that he suffer for sinners. Neither turned back. He did not turn back from the Lord's will to suffer. Even when, the, when God's will is what? That our salvation come through what means? His own suffering and death. Philippians 2.8, this is speaking of God the Son, being found in fashion as a man in the incarnation. He humbled himself, that is, he became the suffering servant, and became what? Obedient unto what? Death. Even the death of the cross. The Son of God, this divine person, incarnated as man, humbled himself, even to become obedient to God unto death, even the death of the cross for sinners. And he was not, he was not begrudging in this work. He was not forced into obedience, like so many of us are in our obedience to God, half-hearted at best sometimes, unsure or unwilling to obey from the heart. Was that your Savior? No. Even when his obedience came at a terrible price? No. Jesus was a willing sacrifice. His human will was ever inclined to God's will. What does he pray? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Do you think that was an insincere prayer in Gethsemane? No, this was the prayer of his heart. It was heartfelt. That's the third petition he prays, isn't it? He prays the third petition of the Lord's Prayer. What is the third petition, boys and girls? Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Our Lord Jesus is the very incarnation of Psalm 119, verse 112. I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes always. Listen to these words. Even unto the end. From start to finish, he ever inclined his heart to the will of God, even unto death. And nothing illustrates that he would not turn back from God's will than when those that he loved and came to save, they themselves tempted him to turn away from the cross, didn't they? From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Okay, he is not unaware of God's will, is he? He was not taken by surprise. But then what happens? Peter took him and began to rebuke him. Imagine that, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, that this should not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Matthew 16, 
Here is Jesus, right? Once again, proven to be the last Adam, not tempted by Satan, not tempted by ease to turn away from fulfilling his work as a suffering servant at Calvary's cross. And how great was Satan's temptation when it didn't come from the mouth of a serpent, but from the mouth of one of his own beloved disciples. But for their sake, and ours too, he did not turn back. He always savored his meat, he said, was to do the will of the Father. And how astonished we are that the Father's will is this, and Christ's will as well, both in lockstep, is that you be saved through his sufferings and his travails. Is that not, is that not a word to the weary? That it is the will of God and the will of Christ that you be saved solely and entirely through the sufferings of Jesus Christ in your place. What more could you ask for? What more could you have than that, beloved? When you look upon the emblems of your Savior's body and blood at the table, you must recognize Christ's willing obedience, his willingness to give himself. This is my body which is broken for who? For you. In other words, this is my body which I willingly give for you out of love. And may the sixth verse then interpret your impression of the communion bread, that emblem of his body. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. How that elevates, doesn't it? The simple words, this is my body which is given for you. (sighs) Oh, weary one, will you not see his willingness to take on himself this shame and this pain? Shame and pain you and I deserve, but shame and pain that he endured for our sake, in our place. He said, I gave, I gave. In other words, here I am, take me. I gave my back to the smiters. And you ask yourself, why? We don't often ask these questions, but we must. Why? Why has he given his back to the smiters? For you. This is my body, which is given for you. We don't ask the question and how profound it would be and how he would remove our weariness today if we would know the answer to why. He delivered himself up that he might deliver us all. He presented his body to the smiters that they might cruelly plow it. You heard the cruel scourging in Matthew 27. The agony of Christ's sufferings revealed by the 129th Psalm. The plowers plowed upon my back They made long their furrows. It's not a small thing. They plowed his back as you might plow a field with a horse. They made long their furrows. This is a penal punishment, friends. This is a punishment for criminals and for fools. But a rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding. Proverbs 10 verse 3. How utterly unfitting, utterly unfitting for the Lamb of God, spotless and blameless, no criminal, in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found, no fool, but he becomes as one for our sake. He willingly takes the rod upon his back and was shamed before all men as one void of understanding because we are criminals. And we are criminals of the divine law and fools who despise divine wisdom. And then he says, he would give his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. What does that signify? Shame and humiliation. You recall when the king of the Ammonites wanted to shame David, we read that he took David's servants and shaved off the one half of their beards and cut off their garments in the middle, even to their buttocks, and sent them away. When they told it unto David, he sent to meet them. Because why? The men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, tarry at Jericho until your beards be grown, and then return. 2 Samuel 10. Well here, for the sake of his servants, the son of David, 
does not have his servants' beards torn. He suffers shame in a greater way than David suffered by having his own beard torn out of his face. I hid my face, I hid not my face from shame. And then with his beard ripped off of him, with his bare bloody face, he presents it to the smiters. Luke 22, they struck him on the face and asked him saying, prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spoke they against him. Was it enough to beat the Savior? They had to mock him as a fool as well. But they kept, he kept his mouth silent. He did not turn back from any of this. When reviled, he reviled not in turn because he submitted to all of this for what purpose? For you. For you who believe. He knew exactly what he was doing. He came to fulfill his own prophetic word from Micah 5.1. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. Here he is, the king of kings, right? And what was the inscription upon the, uh, the, the cross that we read in Matthew 27? Here is Jesus, the king of the Jews, that they smite as, they prophesy, as he prophesied with a rod upon the cheek. Think of this, the supreme judge smitten by a rod upon the cheek for the sake of sinners. You know, Micah 5.1 speaks of Jesus, boys and girls. What is the next verse? It's well known to you. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the rulers of uh, the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall uh, he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been of old from everlasting. This is Christ prophesied of the Son of God who would be beaten on the cheek. The everlasting God, the ruler of Israel, struck by his own subjects, right? Who ought to have prostrated themselves before the Lord of glory. And yet they strike him mercilessly. But I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And the spittle, the spittle upon his precious face. Think of it. You know, until then, until that moment, sinners had only metaphorically spat at the face of God. But then when he comes in the flesh, they could spit at God and they did. Matthew 26, 67. Then did they spit in his face. This is perhaps one of the most degrading things that can be done to a person. Boys and girls, Maybe you might be interested to know this, that in Texas it is still a crime to spit in someone, at someone. It is still a crime. It is an assault. Never spit on another. It is vile. It is disgusting. It transmits disease and it pollutes another. And you do this to those. They did this to one that they despised so greatly and saw as unclean. Be astonished. Be utterly astonished, O heavens, that the Almighty willingly submits to such torment and treatment. How hard is your heart today if you are unmoved by the thought that this is your God, beloved, suffering such shameful treatment, holding back his almighty power willingly. You know, you know he could have burst forth his power. The king of the angels, right, could have called forth a legion of angels to eradicate these fools and sinners who did such things. But he did not. So that he could say, this is my body which is given for you. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Now think on the construction of that phrase. What an interesting turn it is, I thought. It's the opposite, isn't it, of what you might expect. Because when you are shamed, what do you do? You hide your face. But Jesus said, I will not hide my face. Here is my face. You spit at me. You shame me. In verse 7, I set my face like a flint. I am unmoved. But really all of this, what it demonstrates is that his willingness goes beyond the fact that smiters, that he would present his body to smiters, that is men who would hurt his body only, but that he was willing to be the Lamb of God who despised the shame to endure the wrath of God on the cross. 
to become a propitiation for our sins. Reviled by men, the Son of God becomes a holocaust in our place for God. At the table, then, what we see is the willingness of Christ to be the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And that's just portrayed for us in the flesh, in His body, through these vivid sufferings to show His obedience unto the end. Willing to go to the cross for you weary of sin, to have outside of Christ enmity with God. You know He only cried and the wrath of God was poured upon his soul for us as we read earlier, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Bearing our sin is only one part of the equation needed for our salvation. Philippians 2 said Christ, and this word is very important, was obedient unto death. His whole life unto death was obedience to God. You know, in Psalm 40, what did we sing? Right? He said, here am I, right? My uh, 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 burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. Just as he became sin for us, he also willingly came to give us his obedience. His righteousness is ours to possess, perfect, spotless, blameless. The testimony of the broken bread and the poured wine is this, for as by one man's disobedience were many made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made what? Righteous. Romans 5.19 His heart unwavering, his heart obedience, which was always so pure and fixed on God, his obedience is yours, believer. What God requires of you is found in Him. A free, unmerited gift that you receive by faith. Is that not too a word to the weary? When the bread breaks, say, O my soul, here is Christ obedient unto death. And because of that, I am now made the righteousness of God in Him. I am now counted as a perfect man or perfect woman, even though I am not. I am counted as though I have personally kept all the laws of God. Not because I did it myself. No, I fail constantly. But because my faith is in the righteous one who gives me his own righteousness. And so now I can sing with no hypocrisy, united to Christ, that I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. And through all his suffering. In verse 7, the suffering servant expressed his trust in Jehovah. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. His humanity's faith was ever in the Lord, that the Lord would ever help him. Therefore shall I not be confounded, and I know that I shall not be ashamed, even though I present my face for shame and spitting. In this, there is something vital to grasp. He despised the shame of men, but he was never ashamed before God. He came to do the will of God, and there is no shame in that, beloved, even if there is shame before men in doing the will of God. And for you, believer, you are not to worry about the shame of men. You are to trust in the Lord that he will be your help. You do his will, and you despise the shame of men. You know what Jesus knew, that his sufferings would lead to not to shame, but to exaltation. Hebrews 12 tells us what? That Jesus despised the shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. We'll close on this thought. Two aspects of joy come to mind. First, and isn't this marvelous, the joy of reconciling you to God. That's part of his joy that he has reconciled you to God, anticipating the joy on the cross, that he would be able, after the wrath of God is appeased, to say, it is finished. My beloved bride is saved, and saved to the uttermost. What joy there was that he knew that he has washed his bride, with the water of the word, his own blood as well. Winning your salvation, atoning for your sin, being a propitiation before God. He rejoices even now in the heavens that you are saved that you will be his forever. Is that not a word from God to the weary? Second, he anticipated the joy of his exaltation. 
looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. This is where your Savior is. He's not dead in the grave. He is set down at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning. Now what's the use of all these things? Hebrews 12, 1-3 teaches you, Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen to this. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest what? Ye be wearied and faint in your own minds. Is this not a word to the weary? Is this not a word that is given from the tongue of Christ to you who are weary? That if you are weary, you consider him. You consider what he endured, lest you be wearied in your, and faint in your own minds. Look on the broken bread and poured out wine and look unto Jesus, enduring the cross, despising the shame. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself and ask the Lord for the grace to run your race with patience, resolving, let me not be weary, let me not be faint, because he has said, where I am, there you will be also. And so you run the race with patience. And as better men have said, Christ was more willing to go to the cross than we are willing to go to him. He is more willing to go to the cross than we are willing to go to him for grace and mercy. So get it straight, friends. We ought to be more willing to go to him than we are. So come and be willing and go to Christ for grace and mercy in your time of need to gain the strength you need. And this is a word from God to you who are weary today to look on his willingness to suffer and save. And he says unto you, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Beloved, if you lament that you believe you are forgotten before God, see in the bread and wine that you are not, for it preaches, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Amen. May Christ our Lord take away your weariness through both word and sacrament. If you are able, please rise for prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we have been staggered by a word to the weary that Christ did not withhold his own self from shame and spitting, but endured the contradiction of sinners even to go to his cross. Even when sinners cried out for that murderous thief, Barabbas, we see that he endured all of that. When they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, he went silently for our sake. We thank you for his willingness to save even the chief of sinners. And now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we, prepare, we pray that you would make that word that we have heard in Isaiah 50 visible in our hearts as we come to prepare to commune with him. Bless us now, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated for a moment as we prepare to come to the Lord's table.